All right. Welcome back, everybody. Been a while since we've done a, uh, a plain old AMA with just me. And uh, Brad, I see your hands raised. I'll call on you in one second, just introducing everyone. So just uh, uh, as usual, um, if you want to, um, oh, maybe Brad put his hand down. Okay. Uh, if you want to ask a question uh, by coming on video and audio and talking, uh, oh, yeah, there it is, um, then raise your hand. Um, if you want to ask a question by text, do not put it in the chat, put it in the Q&A. If you want to jump in on a question that I'm answering for someone else's question, please comment on the question in the Q&A and, um, and then only use the chat if you want to, if someone else is on the screen and you want to add something to the conversation, use the chat for that. Um, or if, uh, yeah, I just use the chat for that. Um, so if you're doing text, just use the Q and A, not the chat. And then, um, oh, and then lastly, I do allow anonymous questions, but in order to make sure that I get to everyone, I will treat all anonymous questions as from one person. And so I'm going to get to your question faster because of that. Uh, if, um, if you don't ask the question anonymously, it's not that I'm purposefully giving preference to people who are not anonymous. It's just that that's the only way that I can ensure them giving everyone equal treatment. Okay. So we have a couple attendees with their hand raised. I saw Brad first. So, uh, Brad, I'm going to promote you to a panelist and, um, that should allow you to, uh, to, to speak and show up. Hi, Brad. Uh, hold on a second. I can, wait, I cannot hear you, Brad. Um, can you say something? And just to make sure whether it's me or not, um, could someone put in the chat whether they can hear Brad talking? I should be on now. Oh, yeah, there you go. Okay, yeah, a box popped up for me to unmute. Okay, cool. So my question is about methylation. Um, yep. your, uh, your, your material on methylation was helpful. So my question is about um, methylation in general. If you know whether it is random or if it's purpose-driven in some way, for instance, um, uh, I'm getting enough methyl groups that I could potentially silence either a gene like MTHFR that may impair pathway or um, it could also theoretically silence a FOXO3 gene that I like having, you know, active. So do we know whether methylation is random or whether the body uh, drives it towards what's more efficient? Yeah, okay. So um, I think a, a good way for me to reframe that, and then you can, if, if, you, if you don't agree with the way I'm reframing it, let me know. But I think a, a way to reframe that would be, is the regulation of DNA driven more by the methyl supply or more by regulatory purposes to suit the body's needs that are not are not regulated by the methyl supply. In other words, um, are you going to silence genes that could be silenced by methylation just because you're getting more methyl groups in your diet, or are you going to silence them because your body perceives that that should be silenced? Is that a, is, is that what you're it asking? Is. Yeah. Yes. Um, so at the, at the regular, um, the simple way to, to say this is uh, just to say that at the level of DNA uh, methylation, it has almost no dependency on the supply of methyl groups whatsoever, unless you hit ex very extreme 
deviations from the normal range of methyl group supply. So you could like, for example, if you had a profound genetic defect that cut one of the like MTHFR down to zero or something like that, not the common polymorphisms, but like a rare genetic defect or something like that, um, then, or you had an extreme deficiency of B12 or something like that, then yeah, at that point, you may have deficient methylation to the point where you're not methylating DNA like you should. And similarly, there was a study in a, in a, a goody mice where they changed the coat color and numerous things that were thought to be genetic in them were reversed by supplying methyl donors. But they were in that study, they were supplying methyl donors at like way higher than anyone ever supplements with. So within the normal range, the DNA methylation is, is completely regulated by the body's perception that that gene should be turned on or off or turned up or down and is not regulated by the methyl group supply. If you want to get a little more te technical about it, um, all the different enzymes that are involved in methylation have different, uh, different levels of priority of access to methyl groups based on their affinity for SAMe. Uh, and by SAMI, I mean S-adenosylmethionine, which is the universal methyl donor. So some enzymes have really high affinity for SAMI, and that means that even if SAMI concentrations are really low, they're going to be saturated, and they're going to be operating at maximal activity. Mm -hmm. Other enzymes are, have real low affinity for SAMI. That means when SAMI concentrations drop, all of a sudden the activity of that enzyme drops really fast. And when SAMI concentrations go back up, all of a sudden it goes up. And uh, the DNA methyltransferases have really high affinity for methyl groups to the point where they're always saturated. And if you want to change their activity, you need to make more of that enzyme or less of that enzyme. Or you need to make more of some other regulatory thing that is going to flip that enzyme on or off. And, and, so, uh, and so by contrast, creatine synthesis is extremely sensitive because it's very low affinity for methyl groups. And that system is there by design because let's say there's a gene that has to be suppressed so you don't get cancer, for example. You don't want that to go up and down with the fasting feeding cycle, right? You eat a steak, your methyl group supply goes way up. You're fasted for five or six hours, your methyl group supply goes way down. Um, and you don't want to be flipping on and off cancer genes because of how long you had since your last meal. By contrast, creatine right. synthesis, all you care about is whether over the long term you break even by making enough creatine to, to replace the two grams that you're lost in your urine every day. And that's like 2% of, of the creatine in your muscles that you're losing. So if your creatine synthesis goes down for a few hours, you don't care. It makes no difference. All that matters is at the end of the week, do you have more or less the same amount of creatine in your muscles as you had before? So if the methyl group supply drops, then you sacrifice creatine synthesis because you can make up for it later. You don't sacrifice key regulation of neurotransmitters as much. And you certainly don't sacrifice key regulation of long-term genes that are critical to survival or to regulating your body processes um, correctly. Does that answer your question? It does. So the, so the body for its own purposes will determine which genes it's going to to methylate essentially exactly it's not a random process 
Okay. Exactly. Yeah, it's not a it's not a random probability function of the supply of methyl groups. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, so you've addressed what we can do to um, to support methylation. Um, however, for the enzymes that you that you mentioned, um, uh, is there anything that we can do specifically to support them, or or is it just the the methylation in general? Uh, I don't, I'm not sure how to answer that because that strikes me as a question about like hundreds of enzymes. Okay. Can you, is there, can you narrow that down to like one or two enzymes? No, no, okay. not right now. Thanks. Okay. So. All right. Thank, cool. thank you, Brad. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Next question is from Mark Lanza. Mark, I am making you a panelist. And you should be able to speak shortly. Mark, are you there? Looks like uh, maybe we'll come back to Mark. Um, okay, I'm gonna answer questions from the Q&A. So first question is from Mindy Cabrera. First question is from Mindy Cabrera. And the question is, what dietary recommendations do you have for a 45 year old male with elevated triglycerides? My husband's doctor wants him to take fish oil. My husband wants to go back to eating paleo. His cholesterol was 225 and other blood lipids were right around the upper limit of normal. My husband was diagnosed 10 plus years ago with NASH, which is non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is an advanced inflammatory version of fatty liver disease. Uh, my husband was diagnosed 10, years, 10 plus years ago with NASH, but his liver enzymes normalized with improved diet. Well, ever since he's not overweight. Um, oh, I think, Mar uh, I think Mark might be with us. Mark, if you're there, hold on a second and the answer Mindy's question come back to you. Okay, so um, elevated triglycerides, basically there's two or three things you could do. So you can take high dose fish oil that will lower the triglycerides. Uh, it's not my preferred approach because I think that it, uh, I worry that a high dose of EPA, which is what you need to lower triglycerides could have negative effects on the ability to resolve inflammation and negative effects on the development of food intolerances. So I don't like that approach, but it will be effective. The second thing you could do is go on a low carbohydrate diet um, I believe that if your triglycerides respond well to a low carbohydrate diet, that is pretty good evidence that you are suffering from insulin resistance. And the goal should be to resolve the insulin resistance. And if you're going to do that with a low carbohydrate diet, I'm fine with that. But I think you ultimately want to transition to a point where you can tolerate carbohydrates and bring healthy carbohydrates back into your diet. Um, but for, I mean, because you should be able to eat healthy versions of carbohydrate foods without your triglycerides spiking. Um, if he was diagnosed 10 years ago or 10 plus years ago with NASH, then that would explain, then he's almost certainly insulin resistant. Uh, the liver harm itself is probably a factor in his metabolic problems and his high triglycerides. And the fact that his liver enzymes have been normal ever since does not mean 
anything whatsoever. And if you want to confirm resolution of the NASH, you need to do so with imaging or biopsy, the most, uh, the least, um, the least invasive way to do it would be to get do it with ultrasound. All right, I hope that answers your question, Mindy. Uh, Mark, are you there? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Mark, what's okay. your question? Thanks for taking my question. Um, I actually have two, and I think they're rather simple for you. Um, the first one is, and, and the reason I'm asking is I've heard over the years pros and cons to both, but if uh, you, you put vegetables in a three-and-a-half-minute steam basket, yeah. The residual juice, is it okay to drink it or should it be disposed? And the predominant vegetables, there's a there's a, a cruciferous vegetable, whether it's broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, kale, and then there's a mixture of other things like asparagus, tomatoes, carrots, mushrooms, things like that. Yeah, so, I, think, I think you can drink that. The only, what I wouldn't drink would be the soaking water from beans. Okay, okay. Steaming water from veggies. Okay, and then I have uh, one more question. Um, on, on Twitter, you made a comment. It was a random comment to something somebody said. Well, I made a lot of uh, random comments on well, Twitter. I know this was actually pretty germane to the topic. And you said, if I had cancer, I would go on a low-protein diet. Oh, yeah. And the first thing I thought of was, well, if – is that – like, why don't we do that for cancer prevention? Like, why don't we go on a low-protein diet to prevent getting it in the first place? Oh, because I think that will give you cancer. Oh, okay. Well, that answers that, too. Thank you very much. Well, I'll, I will. I will expand a little bit. So, um, I, I would recommend that people. Um, and actually, let me let me put a, a note for me to link to these in the show notes. Um, I, I would recommend that people that people re look at my review of of uh, T. Colin Campbell's work on not my review of the China study, but my review of his laboratory research with with uh, with rats and mice. Um, and what he talks about in the China study is how protein promoted the growth of cancer. What he doesn't talk about is that what he found was uh, he was at first he was mainly dealing with aflatoxin and he was giving aflatoxin in acute doses. And leading up to the aflatoxin, he would feed one day one diet during the dosing of aflatoxin he'd feed one diet. And after the dosing of aflatoxin, he'd feed a diet. And what he found was that high protein with the protein supplied by casein, uh, high, high protein before and during the aflatoxin dosing was extremely protective against cancer. But high protein after the aflatoxin dosing may accelerated the growth, growth of the cancer massively. So what he did to maximize cancer was he would feed low protein up to and during the aflatoxin dosing and then feed high protein uh, after it. And when he wanted to show that that was a cancer-promoting effective protein, what he would do is he'd randomize animals to get one or two different dietary approaches. All of them were fed low protein before and during the aflatoxin dosing so that there would be maximal initiation of cancer then they would be randomly put on either high protein or low protein after the aflatoxin dosing. And all that cancer that was caused by eating a low protein diet while they were dosed with before and during dosing with aflatoxin, um, all that cancer would grow a lot faster on the high protein diets. And so uh, probably at least part of the mechanism is that aflatoxin is detoxified with glutathione 
And glutathione is highly dependent on protein intake because it's made by, it's made uh, with protein. It's made from protein. And on T. colon Campbell's animals that didn't get cancer, their glutathione levels were obliterated. Um, and they had all kinds of problems that he never talks about in his book. But uh, so basically protein is highly protected against cancer before and during being dosed with carcinogens because it helps you detoxify the carcinogens. Um, but if you get, if you start a cancerous cell, protein is going to fuel its growth because you need protein to grow. And so there's, I mean, people, everyone prefers to live without nuance and gets them in trouble. People think that the diet that prevents cancer is the diet that, that, uh, that you should eat when you get cancer. So that's not true. Um, I would eat the opposite if I was trying to protect myself against getting cancer versus if I had cancer. <laughs> I, I, like, I, I wish um, it was, I wish it was as simple. And so, you know, I mean, the obvious question here is like, um, if I'm not, if I don't have an experimental researcher dosing me with aflatoxin, how do I know if I, if I'm before or after dosing? Um, and the answer comes from a couple of studies that were done by another group where they gave very tiny doses of aflatoxin uh, every day, all throughout the whole study. And whenever they did that, high protein was protective. So it looks like, and I think that's a good model for us, uh, it, with the exception that we're exposed to lots of different carcinogens all the time. But it's a good model in the sense that we're constantly exposed to low doses of carcinogens unless we're in an industrial accident. Um, and so I think that model is much more relevant to us and high protein is protective. And then, you know, the question of course is like, well, can you generalize from rats and mice to humans? Can you generalize from aflatoxin to other cancers? And like, there's lots of questions about what you can generalize. And I think that, you know, there's difference in cancer metabolism. We're going to, as we learn more, we're going to find out like maybe if it's this type of cancer, you should do this. If it's that type of cancer, you should do that. But the reality is we have like almost in human studies, we have almost exclusively speculation from cancer metabolism on that front. And usually that speculation is wrong. Like, you know, like, like people speculated like, oh, the Warburg effect, cancer runs on glucose. And then like someone does a study and shows not if you deprive it of glucose, it runs on fat. And so it's just, um, I, I think it's, I think we have more solid information from the body of literature on experimental diets on of the effect of protein on cancer in certain select models. I think we have really solid evidence in those models. Whereas I don't think we have solid evidence anywhere on the effect of carbs or on the effect of fat um, or on questions like what if it's a glioblastoma versus a melanoma or whatever. So, um, so I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, it's not, yeah, it's not top of the pyramid evidence-based medicine to say that, but it's just, that's where I would hedge my bets. Okay. Thank you. Cool. All right. Thank you for your question. Uh, right back to the Q and A in one second. Um, okay, Chris Morell says, "Hi, Chris. Not sure how much expertise you have on autoimmune issues. Uh, not a whole lot. Um, 
Okay. Um, not sure how much expertise you have on autoimmune issues, but I had my first bout of alopecia areata a couple of years ago. This is an autoimmune uh, hair loss issue that resulted in a small bald spot on the back of my head. It stuck around for a couple of years and grew back. Now it's back again, the same spot, plus a new one somewhat out of the blue. Is there any data for nutrition-based solutions to alopecia? If not, I started getting a, a, the DV, the daily value of iodine via kelp granules to try to solve some climbing lipids. That's the only change in my diet recently. Lifestyle-wise, the two times this has surfaced were around a high-altitude backpacking trip in Utah, but that seems like a coincidence. Stress seems to have a correlation, but I'm curious your thoughts on this. Um, you know, I don't remember everything off the top of my head. So the first thing I'm actually going to do, um, is look up alopecia in the index of testing nutritional status, the ultimate cheat sheet and see what I have here. Cause this is kind of like my notes. So I have deficiencies of riboflavin, biotin, zinc, iron, or iodine, iron overload, selenium toxicity and vitamin A toxicity are the key nutritional relationships I've found. So interestingly, I haven't found um, iodine toxicity, not to say that it doesn't exist. I know you do have an iron overload issue. Um, and selenium toxicity is generally associated with oxidative stress in my, like iron overload in my uh, perception. And selenium is especially relevant to protecting against oxidative stress in the thyroid gland. So in your particular case, I have a hypothesis. Uh, it's just a hypothesis, but I'm going to guess that the dose of iodine that you're taking is upregulating your thyroid hormone production. Thyroid hormone production is an extremely oxidative stress generating process because you have to generate copious amounts of hydrogen peroxide in the thyroid gland in order to oxidize iodide to iodine to make thyroid hormone. And so basically, I think you're upregulating thyroid hormone metabolism without having the necessary defenses against oxidative stress in place or without having adequate dealing of the iron overload issue that you have um, since the iron overload issue would exacerbate any oxidative stress. Um, and so what I would do is I would run through the nutritional testing associated with oxidative stress in the cheat sheet. And then I would see if you have a missing link there, cut back on the iodine for a bit and put the iodine back into place once you've addressed any holes you find in oxidative stress. And then if you have ambiguous iron data, I would interpret it erring on the side of interpreting it as iron overload being present. In other words, if you have, if you have a borderline data measurement or you have conflicting information between ferritin and transferrin saturation or something like that, err on the side of interpreting it as iron overload because I would consider this um, evidence of oxidative stress. Unless you have, I mean, Although I should clarify, iron deficiency contributes to oxidative stress because you need the iron-dependent enzyme catalase to get rid of excess hydrogen peroxide. Um, so the caveat here is if your data is ambiguously favoring iron deficiency, 
you need to deal with that. But if it's ambiguous between your iron status is fine and your iron status is excess, interpret it as an excess that needs to be brought back down. Test for all the oxidative stress-related nutrients, and if there are any holes that are found, fill those holes. In the meantime, pull back on the iodine until you deal with that issue. Right? Hope that helped, Chris. Um, next question is from Pip A. Pip A says, can you talk a bit more about genetic causes of zinc deficiency and increased zinc requirements? Are there conditions where people need a high dose zinc supplement on a permanent basis? Also, how long should you stop zinc supplements before testing to get an accurate idea of zinc status? Um, so first of all, I don't know all the different genetic causes off the top of my head, but I can tell you that there are most or all of them are in zinc transporters and that there are a bunch of genetic polymorphisms in zinc transporters that could affect zinc status, uh, could affect global zinc status, meaning zinc status everywhere in your body by interfering with intestinal transport, but also could affect tissue, specific tissue zinc status by uh, interfering with zinc getting into specific tissues. Um, and I guess you could address that by, uh, I do think that in my long form podcast on zinc, which was a couple years old at this point, how to measure something like um, why you should manage your zinc status and how to do it. And I'll make a note to put that link in the show notes. Um, in there, it's, I might have a list of the RS numbers of the different genes. If I don't, I at least link to a paper that has a table that has the RS numbers of the different genes. And you could use those to look in your 23andMe raw data and see if there's something there. Although I think 23andMe can sometimes be useful for finding something and is never, ever, ever useful for ruling anything out with, the, with very few exceptions. Um, then you could infer a probable um, impair, gen, genetic impairment in zinc ab absorption. If you have a very resistant case of deficiency that is not resolving through zinc supplementation or seems to need very high levels of supplements and you rule out deficient methylation, which can be involved in impaired zinc absorption, and you rule out uh, common sources of zinc loss, such as diarrhea, uh, particularly diarrhea, particularly chronic diarrhea, uh, also vomiting green, which would indicate that you're throwing up bile, which is how you lose zinc uh, in vomit, and also how you, the way you always lose zinc when you have diarrhea. And if you can rule out um, that you're not supplementing the zinc wrong. So if you're taking zinc picolinate, which I know it's controversial, but um, I'm not saying if zinc picolinate works great for you, don't take it. But I am saying if zinc picolinate doesn't move your zinc status, try something else. Um, or if you're taking it with whole grains, nuts, seeds, and legumes, then, uh, then that's your problem, right? So like, if you're taking zinc with your whole grain bread, like with a meal composed of 
boiled lentils and whole grain bread, um, there's, then that's why you're zinc deficient and it's not working. Um, zinc ideally is taken on an empty stomach. You, you will get nauseated if you take 50, five, zero milligrams. So don't do that. Take like 10 milligrams or 15 milligrams on an empty stomach with a full glass of water. You might get nauseated if you do that. If you do take a little phytate free food uh, or a little juice or something to, to cl uh, calm that nausea probably won't happen though. It doesn't happen to most people. Um, and then like, you know, if, if you're vegan or something, um, then you should expect to need zinc. You should expect that it would be hard to move a zinc deficiency. Like if you can rule those things out and your zinc isn't moving in the response to normal zinc supplementation, you probably have a genetic impairment in zinc absorption. Oh, and if you rule out a digestive disorder, right? Like if you're, if you're deficient in everything because you have celiac disease, uh, that, you know, that's why. So if you can rule out all those things and your zinc status still isn't moving, you probably infer that you have a genetic impairment in zinc status, even if you don't have the genetic testing showing it. And then um, you don't need to stop zinc supplements before testing to get an accurate idea of zinc status. Just obey the fasting, uh, the fasting rule. Um, so if it says to fast for 12 hours, do that. Um, if you want to be extra careful, stop the zinc supplement for two or three days. Uh, but it should be fairly accurate if you just go through a normal overnight fasting practice. All right. Hope that helps Pip. Next question is from anonymous and anonymous says, can total to HDL ratio ever be too low? And what would this mean? Also, can triglycerides ever be too low? Um, well, I've never seen a total HDL cholesterol ratio that was too low. I mean, I guess if you had no LDL, um, that would be concerning. But in your case, you're also asking about triglycerides. So I'm guessing both of yours are low. Uh, and I would get I would ask your doctor to get checked for hypobeta lipoproteinemia or a beta lipoproteinemia. Hope that helps. Ben S has the next question and Ben says, uh, one second. Ben says, I make organ meat sausages out of beef or lamb with each sausage containing around 12 grams of liver, 12 grams of kidney, 12 grams of heart, and 24 grams of muscle meat and fat. I use natural casings and season with salt and make them in bulk and freeze. Average consumption is one sausage per day and I cook them in the oven, grill, or fry pan. Any concerns with high heat cooking of organ meats over those, over those of muscle meats? Um, no except that if that really makes the bad taste that people associate with liver really strong, your my guess is you're probably oxidizing sulfur compounds and that might not be that good. But if it doesn't taste bad, it's probably okay. I mean, you know, other than the standard concerns about high heat muscle meats. Next question is any other organ meats that traditional cultures cherish that I could add 
And the last question is any other suggestions or concerns? I'm looking to improve the nutrition from it, but not overdo anything. Uh, liver, kidney, and heart, I think are great places to start. Yeah, there's a but. I mean, all the other uh, organs and glands are things that you know would have been of use. Um, you're not getting bones in that, but you can do that elsewhere. Um, the need for other organs and glands, I think, is partly de depends on your the rest of your nutrition. So, for example, like you might want to throw some adrenal and pituitary in there if you're eating carnivore to get some extra vitamin C. Uh, being careful that too much adrenal could, uh, can, you know, give you some adrenaline overdose. Um, but other than that, I think that's great. And I think what's really great about this is that you're using small doses every day. And some of the nutrients that are really important to absorb from liver have nutrient absorption caps that make getting 12 grams every day superior to getting uh, 84 grams every week, which is what seven days of that would give you. So I think what you're doing is really good, Ben. Next question is from Carl is from Carl Rayner. And this question is, is cardio ion Genova Labs the best all around nutrition test? What are other useful tests? Um, no, the Genova ion plus 40 amino acids is the best one. And by best, I mean, um, I mean, uh, it has the, largest number of markers that are well-validated markers of nutritional status that I like. And, um, but it's not a comprehensive screening. So, you know, I have a comprehensive screening at the beginning of testing nutritional status, the ultimate cheat sheet. And that starts with the Genova ion panel plus 40 amino acids, because that has the largest number of markers that I'm interested in, but because it's not complete, I also list a few other tests um, and those can be found at the beginning of testing nutritional status, the ultimate cheat sheet. It's kind of laborious to list them all off. And so I will just uh, link to that in the show notes. Um, I mean, Carl, if you do, if you do want to follow up on a, with a more specific question, other than just rattling off a bunch of um, isolated tests that I would add to the ion plus 40, uh, then follow up and I'll answer those questions. Okay, thank you for your question, Carl. Daniel Salas has the next question. He says, hi, Chris, I have both serum copper, 72 micrograms per deciliter, and seroloplasmin. Oh, I'm sorry, Will and Brad, I just saw your hands raised. I'll come back to you guys in a second. Hey, Chris, I have both serum copper, 72 micrograms per deciliter, and seroloplasmin, 17.4 milligrams per deciliter at the bottom of the lab core reference range and historically chronically low neutrophils. Daniel has a copper deficiency, ladies and gentlemen. I suspect this is from over-supplementing zinc for a long time. When I try to take copper as copper citrate, even in really low doses, a small fraction of a capsule, I feel really good at first and then I have a crash in energy mood focus and my pollen allergies seem to flare up bad too. Is there anything different I could try my approach or any other nutrients pathways I should support in combination with copper. Um, so first of all, I would recommend getting copper either from food or from mitosynergy.com. Let me link to the, the product here. So 
The thing is that copper in, in typical copper supplements is in a different oxidation state than is found in food. And it, there's some evidence that it's not utilized as well. And mitosynergy.com uh, pivoted from a previous product that had nicotinamide riboside in it, I think. And now they make niacin-bound copper, but the copper is in the oxidation state found in food. And they have a bunch, they're navigating their website, it's pretty confusing. They have, um, it's coming in blurry for me right now for some reason. Um, okay, I think the correct product uh, for some reason, oh, here it is, okay. Um, play, copper, yeah. The correct co uh, product that I like from them is Mito Activator Extra Strength. And I will link to that in the show notes. And I would use that or I would get copper from food. If you're going to get copper from food, I think a liver supplement is the best thing to do. You might be deficient in some other trace minerals if you're taking hydro zinc for a long time, not just copper. Uh, probably best thing to do is to switch your zinc supplement to Oyster Max, which you know, is an oyster extract. And the thing is like, if you get zinc from oysters, unless you have a shellfish allergy, obviously, if you get zinc from oysters, you're, you don't have to worry about all the ultra trace minerals that might be made deficient by isolated zinc supplementation because they're all in the oyster. Um, and then, all right, you feel good. Then you have a crash in energy, mood and focus and your pollen allergies seem to flare up bad. Uh, all allergies. So your, your histamine is spiking, it would seem. And why would your histamine be spiking? Uh, so, it, I mean, it's, why would your histamine be spiking from copper? Um, So maybe copper is diverting vitamin C or B6 into some other pathway that's taking them away from histamine metabolism. I'm not sure. Uh, you should probably get worked up for nutrients involved in neurotransmitter metabolism. Uh, Genovion plus 40 would have neurotransmitter metabolites in the, uh, it, urinary metabolites in that panel, that could be useful. Um, I mean, certainly you're copper deficient. So you need to move that copper into the middle of the reference range and see the neutrophils resolve for that. And you might, I mean, maybe these things are going to stabilize if you actually get out of copper deficiency. So maybe you just need to like kind of suck it up and stay on the copper supplementation, but you know, granted switching either to food or to um, the, the uh, copper niacin supplement I recommended. And then um, take a look at my seven steps to cure histamine intolerance. There's a list of things in that. So let me make a note to link to this. There's a, um, oh shoot, where did my, close this, there it is. Uh, there's a list of nutritional factors involved in histamine metabolism that are in that. 
And maybe let me just pull that up right now just to mention them. Ooh, not on that one. Um, here we go. Apologize for the wait. Okay, so uh, copper you're looking into, I would look at your markers of vitamin B6 status, vitamin C. I'd get your estrogen levels checked, um, methylation status, selenium status, vitamin A, and also check out a, uh, in the seven steps to cure histamine intolerance, take a look at the list of medications that I linked to in there uh, to see if any of those apply to you. All right, Daniel, thank you for your question. Now, um, okay, Brad and Will have their hands raised. So Will, I'm gonna put you on. Will, are you there? Will? Okay, I'll uh, wait for Will. Brad, it looks like you have another question. So I'll put you back on. Brad, are you there? Can you hear me? Yeah, now I can. Okay. So um, my next question is, uh, I eat the same thing every single day, um, and it's taken me a while to get it dialed in. I track it with chronometer okay. so that I know I'm getting all the macros as well as the micronutrients that I need from food rather than supplementation now. Yep. Um, so essentially, I've come up with my own TPN. Um, can you tell me if that's a bad idea, if I need to incorporate diversity for, for any other reason other than hitting the numbers? Yeah, it's only your own TPN if you're injecting it. Um, okay. But, uh, but I see what you mean. Um, okay, re repeat the last question again. Is there any problems if you're just looking at the numbers? Um, so if I'm hitting all of my targets for yeah. um, omega-3 to omega-6 ratio for macros for minerals for all of the amino acids that I'm getting. Um, is there any downside to eating the same thing every day? Do I need diversity? Oh, oh um, I think you want diversity, um, but you probably have enough diversity if you're getting all your micros. So like the, the main reason to want diversity is because different foods have different nutritional profiles. And I mean, I, I kind of recommend diversity as a, an alternative to micromanaging. Right. And, uh, but you're, you're kind of micromanaging. I mean, you're, you're investing micromanaging a system in order on the back end and not have to micromanage anything. Right. Like you're yeah. trying to, you're investing a lot of time setting up a system to eat the same thing every day. So that on the back end, you don't have to worry about it. Correct. And that's, that's just a different approach to arrive at the same place. Um, and I mean, in fact, your approach is probably a little more reliable than diversity. But for somebody who's not going to invest that time, diversity is a very good way to protect themselves against really messed up nutritional profiles. Um, I think anything, any other argument for diversity is really speculation. Like some people speculate eating the same thing every day is going to favor food intolerances. I, I doubt it. I mean, it might, um, if you have a pro 
food intolerance environment in your gut, but but like not eating the same everything every day in that case is probably a pretty bad way to solve having a pro-inflammatory, pro-immune food intolerance environment in your gut. So um, I, I don't think so. I think you're fine. Okay. Um, the other question that I had was I do a lot of sauna time and I get uh, cramps well, after. I'll, I'll, hold on. Will, oh, yeah. uh, Will, I'll get to you right in one, in one second. I'm going to let Brad finish up. Cool. Okay. Go ahead, Brad. Okay. So I do a lot of work in the sauna. Um, and after the sauna, I go, I'll get muscle cramps. So I'm obviously losing a lot of minerals, sweating out salt, you know, that sort of thing. I was supplementing it with a, a lot of salt, probably too much, um, as well as uh, no salt, which is potassium chloride, um, thinking that that would, that would help balance the levels. Um, and what it seemed to be doing was it was spike, spiking my blood pressure. Um, my blood pressure would normally be like 110 over 50 and or 105 over 50, something like that. It was, it was spiking just the systolic. So it'd be like 140 over 50. So I've cut back on the supplementing afterwards. Um, and uh, so is there any better trick to, to supplementing with minerals after, after losing so much through sweat? Uh, I would have a bottle of Steiner mineral water and I would take two or 400 milligrams of potassium citrate, uh, 100 milligrams of magnesium citrate, and maybe a little bit of food salted to taste. Okay. Um, and then last question, this should be quick, is the, as far as supplementing with protein, um, are there any that you like, like whey protein isolates or um, essential amino acids, anything like that? I use whey protein. Okay. All right, cool. thanks, Brad. Thanks. Okay, uh, Will Sutke, you're up. Thank you for your time, doctor. Um, is fish oil, which I believe is polyunsaturated fatty acids mostly, at risk for oxidation during the cooking process of fish, say grilling or baking fish? And if so, any concern about that? I've heard no one talk about that. Yeah. Um, I mean, probably to a little degree, but when you cook it, I mean, the thing is like, when you get a, when you get a slice of fish, it's not chemically deodorized. So if you're oxidizing a lot of it, it's probably going to smell pretty bad. Mm. It tends not to smell pretty bad. And I don't think it's just that everyone covers up the smell, bad smell with sauces and stuff like uh, you know, if you just put salmon in the oven, um, it doesn't smell rancid when you take it out in my experience. So I doubt that there's, I doubt that it's a major problem. Um, but you know, I'm sure if you chemically analyzed it, you'd find some oxidation products there. I think the bigger risk is that if you're loading up the fish oil in your body, you are increasing the oxidative liability in your body. So the way that I view fatty fish is if you don't have a specific condition that you're trying to treat that is responsive to grams per day of omega-3s, like high triglycerides or certain psychiatric disorders, um, then I would say like two servings of fatty fish per week is a good limit. And I don't think you want to be getting like, you know, three meals of salmon a day. I think it's, you're overdosing on, 
EPA that's going to later oxidize inside your body where it's inevitably going to be exposed to free radicals um, and other oxidants. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I wouldn't worry about, I wouldn't worry about cooking it, um, but I'm sure like if the higher the heat exposure, the worse that's going to be. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I just, I haven't looked at ex the data exactly. I just have trouble believing that um, if it doesn't smell bad, that you've oxidized a whole lot of those oils. That's my thought. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Will, for your question. And our next question comes from Gary Krieger. Gary Krieger says, per your podcast, a keto diet is suggested as beneficial for brain health. However, carbs are seen as critical for a healthy metabolism overall. Is a keto suggestion only for those with insulin resistance? If so, is it intended to only be a short-term plan until the insulin resistance is reversed? Thank you. Um, so in my personal opinion, my personal opinion, the, the, the evidence for the keto diet is most convincing in cases of elevated glutamate or elevated glutamate to GABA ratios in the brain. I don't think insulin resistance is relevant at all. Now that said, um, I do think that if you suffer from hyperglycemia when you eat carbs because you're insulin resistant and you're pre-diabetic or you're diabetic, you can make a case that restricting carbs to a glycemic load that is not causing your blood sugar to spike is a good approach to reduce the stress on your pancreas. You don't have to eat keto to do that. And you don't have to, and that has nothing to do with brain health, in my opinion. I mean, not saying that insulin resistance is good for brain health. I just, I don't think there's any relationship between why you would want to do low carb in the context of hyperglycemia conditions. I don't think there's any direct relationship between that and why you would want to do keto for brain health. Um, so, you know, elevated glutamate or an elevated glutamate to GABA ratio is probably what keto is fixing in the vast majority of cases of epilepsy. Um, there are some cases where episodes of hyperglycemia are the, the key thing driving this uh, spike in brain glutamate. And so the hyperglycemia is relevant in those situations. And there are very rare cases of glucose transporter defects where the brain just can't use glucose and has to use ketones. And that's why it's effective. But by and large, it's effective in epilepsy because it's affecting the glutamate GABA balance. And so, you know, if you look at, at chronic pain can involve elevated glutamate, a bunch of different psychiatric disorders can involve elevated glutamate. Uh, I think probably a subset of insomnia can involve elevated glutamate. Um, more neurological conditions that aren't just, um, that are not just uh, 
psychiatric in nature could involve elevated glutamate. I mentioned chronic pain. Uh, ALS is another one that probably involves elevated glutamate. Um, so I think anything with that is probably where you could generalize that if we know the ketogenic diet alters the glutamate GABA balance in a way that favors less glutamate, more GABA. And if we know that that has clinically relevant effects in epilepsy, we could hypothesize that the next sort of next um, most closely related set of conditions where we would expect to get similar positive results from would be any of those other conditions that involve elevated glutamate to GABA ratio. I think that's completely separate from the fact that if you have insulin resistance and you're carbohydrate intolerant and you tend to either get um, way higher insulin spikes than you should get or way higher glycemic spikes than you should get when you eat high glycemic loads, you should lower your glycemic load so that you're not killing your pancreas. I think that's a totally separate issue. All right. I hope that, um, I hope that helps Gary. Uh, just a reminder in the chat, high probability that I will not see your question if you ask it there, but I just noticed that Sharon asked where I'm posting the link for Mitosynergy. That's going to be in the show notes that accompany this podcast when it's released. Um, okay, since we have a chat, good point. I can post the link in the chat for people who want to take it now. Oh, wait a second. Um, here we go. Okay, there. The, that link is in the chat for anyone who wants to access it now. Um, okay, so next question is from Sharon Schultz. Sharon says, it is my understanding, is my understanding that we need estrogen for healthy brain function. When women reach menopause and estrogen drops, I hear a lot about senior moments from my menopausal friends, and I'm wondering what you might have to say about how to work with the low estrogen. Do things like maca, shatavari, bacopa, et cetera, help? And what is your opinion of bioidentical hormones? Um, I'm not a great person to ask about this because I just haven't done a like I'm just weaker on sex hormones than I am on the other things that I talk about. But I'll say that most of the data is behind uh, Premarin, not bioidentical estrogen. And that data generally favors being very good for preserving brain health if it's initiate, if, form, if HRT is initiated around the menopausal period and the effectiveness drops off the longer you wait. Uh, there's a pretty good critical discussion of this at the end of the book, The Female Brain. And um, the book, Estrogen Matters, is uh, a, a good defense of standard HRT. Um, I'll put a note to link to uh, The Female Brain and Estrogen Matters. If you have a question about herbs and hormones, I would take this over to Dr. Carrie Jones, who's the medical director for the Precision Analytical, which does the Dutch test. I actually had an Ask Us Anything About Hormones episode with her on as a guest. She's really active on Instagram. 
Okay, so I'll put a note to link to Gary Jones on IG. Um, yeah, I go over to Carrie Jones on Instagram and ask her a question there about these herbs and estrogen. All right, thank you for your question, Sharon. Ben Gilsdorf says, any nutritional suggestions to help with cramping from statins? I have familial hypercholesterolemia. I currently take 400 milligrams of magnesium twice a day and a daily mineral supplement. Um, I, I, I mean, if you're on statins, you should be taking coenzyme Q10. You should be taking vitamin K2 as MK4 because statins inhibit the synthesis of both those things. Cramps could be caused by anything that lowers ATP production. And the best way that I know of that statins would alter would lower ATP production would be by lowering CoQ10 synthesis. And so you should be taking CoQ10 if you're not. And that, and I would follow the label, feel free to titrate up to, you know, two or three times the label. Um, but that's the first thing I would try if you're not already doing that. All right. Thank you, Ben, for your question. Todd Becker says, can you think of any mechanism by which magnesium would inhibit glucose uptake? Sorry for the pauses here, but I, I need to collate the questions or else it'll take me forever to figure out how to summarize the episode afterwards. Okay, Todd Becker says, can, and unfortunately Zoom, one thing I hate about Zoom is they, they make the Q&A disappear as soon as you close the webinar. All right, Todd Becker says, can you think of any mechanism by which magnesium would inhibit glucose uptake or affect insulin levels? Or affect insulin levels? Yeah, insulin secretion is, is stimulated by ATP, which does everything it does as a chelate of magnesium. I don't know how magnesium would inhibit glucose uptake though. Um, well, I don't know what you mean, glucose uptake where. Uh, so like, for example, if you improve ATP status in a muscle cell or a fat cell, then you know magnesium could do that and that would inhibit glucose uptake because the muscle would need less ATP. So yeah, both of those. In the brain, for example, uh, Todd, can you add context there? I mean, like the brain basically passively takes up glucose in a non-insulin dependent manner based on blood glucose concentrations. So if you lower blood glucose, actually, maybe I should read the rest of your question. <laughs> the rest of her question says, I was told melatonin inhibits insulin. Maybe it does, I don't know. And this prevents your blood sugar from falling too low at night and waking you up with hypoglycemia. Um, that makes sense to me, but I, don't, I, I haven't looked at it. But taking magnesium before bed seems to cause nightmares and waking up with low blood sugar symptoms. Can you think of any me mechanism by which magnesium would do that? Thank you. Um, the first thing that I would do is measure your blood glucose and see if it's actually low. I mean, because why, why brainstorm hypotheses around why it's affecting your blood sugar level without measuring your blood sugar, you could easily confirm or refute that by measuring your blood sugar when you wake up. Um, granted, if your blood sugar is low initially, 
you might not have low blood sugar. You might have an adrenaline spike to normalize the blood sugar or cortisol spike. Uh, I mean, cortisol would be first, adrenaline would be second probably. Um, and that could probably cause nightmares. But why would magnesium cause low blood sugar? Um, I think by increasing insulin secretion, like I said at the beginning. So remember the, the um, well also, uh, let's see. So if you, if you raise your magnesium levels too high, can also lower the blood levels of potassium. Lowering blood levels of potassium would probably drop your insulin. And so that's not a good explanation. So I, I would say that probably, you know, I, I mean, this is the problem with, with the believing in the, the false belief that glucose is what stimulates insulin output. I mean, on a practical level, that is, true, but on a mechanistic level, it's not true at all. What stimulates insulin secretion in the pancreas is ATP. And, um, and if you're deficient in magnesium and you correct a deficiency if you're, or, you're, or you're borderline such that you're in the range where more magnesium means more ATP function, then insulin is going to lower your blood sugar. And so if you take magnesium on an empty stomach in that case, then the thing is like the, usually the way this works is you have enough magnesium. And so your ATP never reflects your magnesium level It reflects the, the, the things that it's supposed to reflect. And so in the pancreas, because the pancreas is wired in terms of the blood distribution and the transporters and everything to take up glucose as its primary source of energy, then what mainly affects ATP levels in the pancreas is rises of blood glucose above basal levels. And, uh, and so if you stimulate insulin response to blood glucose rising, then you wind up with even blood sugar. But if your magnesium status is in a range where more magnesium means more ATP function, then more magnesium might mean more ATP function, the pancreatic beta cell, which is going to make, insulin secretion. And if you take the magnesium on an empty stomach without glucose, then you get insulin secretion that lowers blood glucose. And if your blood sugar drops, then your defenses against that are first falling insulin, rising glucagon, and then rising cortisol, and then rising adrenaline. And so, you know, you, I mean, um, you should probably just not take magnesium without taking glucose is what I would do. All right, thank you, Todd, for your question. I hope that helps. So next question is from Caleb Rudd. Caleb says, hi, Chris. Hi, Caleb. Any ideas on how to lower leptin apart from fasting, keto, and cold thermogenesis? Uh, yeah, lose weight. I mean, leptin is a hormone made by adipose tissue in proportion to its mass. Um, so losing weight is a much more, Caleb says my BMI is 22. Okay. Caleb, why, why is, why do you consider your leptin too high? And, and I guess the second question would be what's your body fat percentage? 
you know, because you're going to have a normal BMI and still have like low lean mass, high body fat. Um, okay. Uh, I'll risk. Okay. Caleb says 11% body fat. Oh no. 11 is his leptin level on a range of 0.5 to five. Uh, I guess, I mean, do, do you have data on your CRP, Caleb? Your C-reactive protein? And also, do you have data on your body fat percentage? So my, my thinking here is... Leptin is a hormone made by adipose tissue in proportion to its mass. His CRP is 0.6. That's pretty good. Not enough to indicate chronic inflammation. Um, Caleb, what's your body fat percentage? Skinny, not sure body fat percentage. Um, okay, I would... I'd consider a couple things. So first of all, I'd get it measured again. And I would wonder things like maybe when you had it measured, you weren't fasting long enough um, from the night before relative to what it should have been. Uh, maybe there's a lab fluke. Maybe you were having something going on in your body that was elevating it. So I would measure it again to see if it's consistent. Then second thing is um, I measure your body fat percentage. Maybe your body fat percentage is higher than you think it is. I mean, you can, it's very possible to, uh, certainly if you have visceral abdominal fat, it's really easy to think like, well, I'm pretty skinny, but I got a little pouch. And um, if it's not subcutaneous fat, it's not hanging off in rolls, you don't look that fat. And if you have low muscle mass and a high body fat percentage burden because of that, that could be driving leptin up. Uh, inflammation is, I think the best supported thing that interferes with leptin sensitivity, which could low, which could raise leptin levels. Um, and then you might have high insulin levels. And if that's the case, that could be feeding into high leptin levels. Other than those suggestions, I'm not sure what else to offer. So I'm not sure that resolves it, but I hope that something in there provided a little bit of brainstorming for you, Caleb. Thank you for your question. Uh, Caleb also says, just watched the sports nutrition AMA. Have you tried the transdermal carnosine yet? I haven't tried the transdermal carnosine yet because Chad said he was going to send me something. You didn't. You forgot. Um, I've been supplementing with beta alanine. And uh, so just to catch everyone up to speed, um, what happened in the sports ask us anything was I had Chad Macias on. He talked about using Lactigo. Should link to Lactigo. And uh, he has shown that transdermal carnosine, carnosine is a dipeptide that is evolved in acid-based buffer, buffering acidity inside the muscle cell. And uh, he's used that to improve fibromyalgia. 
and to improve exercise tolerance in the sense of decreasing delayed onset muscle soreness in athletes. And he says that the mechanism is by decreasing the accumulation of extracellular glutamate, which has neurotoxic effects at the nerve that controls the muscle. And I said, where's the glutamate coming from? And he said, we don't really know. And I said, well, could it be from hydrolyzing glutamine to buffer the acidity? Because hydrolyzing glutamine to generate glutamate and ammonia is how one of the mechanisms by which you buffer acidity. The ammonia binds up the hydrogen ions. Hydrogen ions are acidity. Becomes ammonium ion and then goes into the urine. And that's definitely a major way of buffering acid in the kidney. Maybe that's active in muscle cells too in these cases. And he said, yeah, that's plausible, but we don't know where it's coming from. Well, if carnosine, so I figure if carnosine is decreasing extracellular glutamate and carnosine is an acid buffer inside the muscle cell, then that's probably what's happening. And I brought this up because I had originally not been able to work out and I'll link in the show notes to uh, to my blog post about this. Call if you want to Google it now. It's called uh, "How Measuring My Urine pH Got Me to Love Working Out Again." And so, uh, when I was going through the mold and barium crisis of early 2017 and the residual effects from that, I was going through a period where I like working out once would make me want to spend three hours in bed before I could get up and do anything. And I wouldn't be able to go back to the gym for five days. And I got a, I was working with an environmental medicine doctor who I originally went to, to, to try to get some advice about how to deal with getting rid of the barium who identified a toxic mold issue. And she retired I thought I could interpret my tests myself before and see what mileage I got before I went back to her. So she kind of like ran a bunch of tests and then was out of the picture. The one abnormality on my Genova ion panel was that my glutamate to glutamine ratio was sky high. And so I run through all the potential causes of that. And the only one that makes any sense to me is acid burden. And for the reasons I said that acidity causes you to hydrolyze glutamine to generate glutamate and ammonia and use the ammonia to buffer the acidity. So I started supplementing, I started measuring my urine pH and supplementing with bicarbonate. My urine pH was ridiculously acidic and it got a lot worse when I worked out. And so I supplemented with bicarbonate to find the right dose taken by sodium bicarbonate as baking soda on an empty stomach to allow me to normalize my urine pH and to adjust that between rest days and workout days and adjust the timing for my workouts to keep my urine pH stable in the 6.4 to 6.8 range. And then long story short, that worked. And I was able to work out like five days a week after that and put on a bunch of muscle mass. Um, so I relate that story and Chad is like, you know, if, if you're using bicarbonate to buffer acidity, then you're basically dealing with the problem at a late stage you're not doing anything to buffer the acidity in the muscle, you're buffering the acidity after the acid is released from the muscle. And so I thought, aha, maybe I should try this carnosine thing. And I was particularly interested in it because I found that um, I was having neurological problems that kind of started 
way back at the beginning of that story. So they really started the day I started taking terbinafine, which is an antifungal agent because I had a terrible skin infection. Started getting really bad twitching. And what I found was that, that none of the electrolytes helped except potassium. Five or six grams a day of potassium really, really helped. Last thing that helped was getting rid of all the acidic things in my diet. And so I kind of rounded out my understanding of that around the same time that I had the glutamine to glutamate ratio and started using baking soda to help me work out again. And so during this time, like moving out of my apartment, probably because of the mold issue, helped the neurological stuff, getting off the turbinifin, staying off the turbinifin helped the, and I really, I can't tease these things apart. What I know is, you know, a few months later, I'm out of my apartment, I'm off the turbinifin. At that point, the twitching had receded to paresthesia. There's just a feeling like something's crawling on my cheeks, like constantly. But I was still very sensitive to the point where if I drink carbonated water or if I drink even one sip of wine, um, the twitching would start, like, it, like eye twitching and so on. And then, so there was that. So that's been like distant, distance, fixing mineral deficiencies, distance with time, um, that is mostly gone. But what I noticed was during a period of time uh, around the fall, I was like, you know what? I don't feel like eating legumes and vegetables anymore. I want to eat, I want to eat butternut squash with maple syrup and cinnamon in it because it's the fall. I'm in the mood for butternut squash and this tastes really good. So I just started eating butternut squash, maple syrup, and cinnamon as my, as my, the bulk of my carbohydrates. And I was like, screw the uh, veggies and legumes. And I think I gave myself some B vitamin deficiencies. And, at the, and then at this point, I started developing this problem where I call it quasi twitching. It wasn't really like, like large coarse muscle movements that are like, um, you know, like that. It was more like just this feeling that something was crawling under the skin and bubbling up to the surface. It was like real, I think it was a deep rather than superficial and real um, kind of uh, real fine motor bubbles. Um, so I call it quasi twitching. There's probably a better word for it, you know, medical terminology word for it. And um, so I had hypotheses about how this was related to various things uh, that I no longer think are true. Uh, I thought they were gut related. I thought they were related to hydrogen sulfide gas um, and maybe methane production. And I had some gut issues that mostly turned out to be fructose malabsorption. That's a different story. And, um, and really like I, in, in dealing with my gut issues, one of the things that I was doing was I was trying to mop, mop up hydrogen sulfide gas and, and sulfite with vitamin B6, but I wasn't taking high enough doses and I was using the wrong hypothesis. I thought I was mopping up gas or sulfite. And so that hypothesis blinded me to the need to use more B6. So what, talking to Chad allowed me to think about it in a new way and connect it to everything that had been going on the past couple of years. I thought maybe my real problem is I have an intracellular acid buffering issue that I haven't, that I've never solved. And I was surface managing the symptoms of bicarbonate. And I still have this acid buffering issue. So I still have done nothing and never did anything to 
to really fix the generation of extracellular glutamate. So I'm still getting neurotoxic effects from that or you know, nerve aberrant nerve stimulation from that. And, and I'm getting a little bit of help from the B6 because it's helping convert the glutamate to GABA, but I'm not helping anywhere near enough. So then I started really narrowing down my hypothesis and uh, I got a bottle of beta alanine, which orally you can take and generates intracellular carnosine. The thing that sucks about beta alanine is it causes 15 minutes of itching, 15 minutes after you take it. So I wanna, tr I wanna uh, switch to the transdermal carnosine. It's just that since Chad keeps forgetting me to send me some, and since I got the bottle of beta alanine free with rewards credits, I'm like financially motivated to finish the bottle of beta alanine and like suck it up for the itching. <laughs> so, um, so what I'm finding is that beta alanine dose dependently reduces the amount of B6 I need to control the quasi twitching. And maca, which I'm using as a mood bo boosting supplement, Maca increases my needs for B6. And I think it's because it increases my mood and energy levels. So it increases my energy expenditure. So I think the more energy that, my, that I spend, the higher my metabolic rate, the more acid I generate in my muscles, the more B6 I need to neutralize the glutamate. The more beta alanine I get, the more I'm able to tolerate burning energy without generating as much acid. The more that, or that, more that acid gets buffered while it's still in the muscle cell, I don't have to rely on generating glutamate. So I don't get the neurotoxic effects of the glutamate and I don't require as much B6. So I find that out of everything I was trying, the only, these are like the only things that matter. Just my B6 requirement is determined by the ratio of beta alanine to maca in my diet. And the amount of B6 that I need to stop the twitching is about 25 milligrams less than the amount of B6 that I need to start dreaming. So if I'm taking a lot of maca and I'm not taking as much beta alanine, then I need like 50 milligrams of B6 as P5P to stop the quasi twitching. And I need 75 milligrams to start dreaming. But if I take a lot of beta alanine and I don't take a lot of maca, uh, I can stop the twitching with like 25 milligrams of B6 and I'll start dreaming if I take 50 milligrams. Um, and if I'm, and like clockwork, if I'm not taking 25 milligrams of B6 more than what stops the twitching, I will not remember any dreams from my sleep. Um, and, and sort of like interesting side effect that I had not incorporated in, into my data set at all that I, that I could have noticed in retrospect is that for the last, like all that time, I haven't really been dreaming. Um, and so if you're not dreaming, that's a big sign that you need more B6, I think. Uh, so the answer to your question is no, I have not tried the transdermal carnosine yet, um, but I have tried beta alanine. And I uh, ultimately, I want to transition to transdermal carnosine mainly so I don't have to deal with the itching that beta alanine causes. But right now, the itching is very much worth it relative to the effects, I, positive effects I get from the beta alanine. And so I expect to get the same positive benefits from the carnosine. Uh, I'll add that this has made me look into the possibility that, um, oh yeah, this is how it connects to the turbinifin. So um, 
my cholesterol has always been really low. When I was a vegan, and, and you know, I probably would have been diagnosed with schizophrenia, never mind every anxiety disorder in the book when I was vegan. Uh, my total cholesterol was 106, 106, 106 was my total cholesterol. I've never measured my cholesterol higher than 160. It's usually between 140 and 160 on a diet that's extremely rich in organ meats, egg yolks, and animal fat. Um, and most recently, it was 157 when I had stopped taking psyllium husk, eating a pretty low fiber diet, and using a lot of butter. I'm guessing that throughout a lot of the last year or two, it's been a lot lower than that because there were many times where I was taking psyllium husk, which lowers cholesterol. I was doing it for my gut, though. Um, and I was eating pretty low fat over the last couple of years. And so my cholesterol has probably been pretty low. Now, I thought, okay, let me see if I can connect all this to the terbinafine. So I look up the mechanism of action of terbinafine. Terbinafine is an antifungal because it decreases the synthesis of ergosterol in the fungal cell wall. And ergosterol is the fungal equivalent of cholesterol. So I say, okay, what does this do to human cholesterol? So the equivalent enzyme in humans is 65% inhibited by terbinafine at maximum inhibition. Maximum inhibition concentrations are orders of magnitude under what's achieved in plasma when you take terbinafine for an antifungal effect. So the terbinafine might have lowered my cholesterol by up to 65%. And that's when the neurological problems started. So now I say, okay, why would, what would cholesterol do to increase acidity that correlates with energy expenditure? And the answer is cholesterol is an anti-uncoupler. So in the mitochondrial membrane, the more cholesterol in the membrane, the less permeable the membrane is to hydrogen ions. If you know about uncoupling proteins or cold thermogenesis, which acts through uncoupling or brown fat, which creates heat because of uncoupling, what that means is that when the mitochondrial membrane is very impermeable to hydrogen ions, all the hydrogen ions are funneled into ATP synthase, which generates ATP. But when the mitochondrial membrane becomes permeable to hydrogen ions, the hydrogen ions flow through the membrane instead of going through ATP synthase and don't generate as much ATP. So you decouple the hydrogen ion gradient from ATP production. You also decouple heat production from, from ATP production. So you burn more energy for fuel and generate more heat and synthesize less ATP. Now, if the mitochondrial membrane is more permeable to hydrogen ions, not only do you have to make more carbon dioxide to generate a given amount of ATP, carbon dioxide is acidic, um, but also the hydrogen ions themselves can slip through the membrane and they are acidity. So you have acidity leaking out of the mitochondrial membrane in the form of the hydrogen ions that makes you have to burn more fuel to get the same amount of ATP or even to get a lower amount of ATP, which makes you generate more carbon dioxide. In the worst case scenario, you also generate lactate also, which is acidic. So less cholesterol in the mitochondrial membrane, you have a lot more acidity to generate less ADP. All of a sudden, now I have a good hypothesis that ties together why I went borderline psychotic when I was a vegan, why the terbinafine caused neurological problems, and um, maybe even why I'm so heat intolerant. Uh, like I, I feel like, like I use an infrared sauna, um, to the point where I stop, start sweating and then I get out because I feel amazing if I get the infrared heat and I feel terrible if I start sweating 
like I just, it just ruins my energy. Um, nothing ruins my energy. Like, like the ambient temperature getting into the mid seventies. <laughs> uh, I'm fine with like 75 if I, if I am sitting on the couch, but if I got to do something terrible. Um, so that's a super long, uh, answer to your question, but I'm hoping the story is interesting. So anyway, thanks for asking about that, Killa. Okay. Um, Anonymous says, if you have a methylation impairment, what happens to non-methylated folate? Is it excreted or does it build up? If you have, I, I guess that depends on your methylation impairment is. Um, but there's multiple uses of folate outside of methylation. So like, let's imagine that the methylation impairment is your MTHFR activity is low. Then you're not going, you're not going to make methylfolate as much, but you're going to have the unmethylated folate that can participate in DNA synthesis. And that's its own loop. Um, and yeah, DNA, uh, DNA synthesis, purine synthesis. Um, so there's a number of uses of folate that are probably just going to run through that loop. And then your choline requirement is going to build up. You know, the, the, although um, methylfolate is more stable than other forms of folate. So actually, if you have a buildup of the other forms of folate, you do get more folate degradation. Um, so you will degrade more and you will excrete more, but it's not as if losing some methylfolate production is equal to the amount of folate that you lose because there's plenty of other uses for that folate. Great, hope that answers your question, Anonymous. Mindy Cabrera asks, I'm interested in your thoughts about an unusual reaction to pantothenic acid. I was very excited about the pantothenic acid, pantothenic acid series that you did, and I was so surprised to read about the high doses used in research. I was first exposed to the idea of supplementing with pantothenic acid by the online work of Dr. Stasha Gomenak, who uses it in her sleep work with patients. I started giving it to my son, who was having pretty extreme sleep problems, and it definitely helped with sleep and also with daytime focus. I found 50 milligrams morning and night was best. The interesting part is that when I gave him 100 milligrams in the morning, it lowered his blood pressure, like 85 to 50 low. I was surprised that none of the research noted this reaction. We did this for a year and then have weaned him off of it and the benefits have held. We have added glycine now and have seen significant additional benefits. Huge Chris Masterjohn fans in our family. Thank you, Mindy. Um, so the question is, I guess your question is what might have caused this? Uh, maybe I don't know. I'm totally guessing, but maybe in the gut, some of it was metabolized to beta alanine, which acts on a subset of glycine receptors and can have inhibitory neurotransmitter effects. And I'm, I'm not sure if lowering blood pressure is one of them. I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, so that's one possibility. 
If it's straight pantothenic acid, I don't think it's going to generate cysteamine, so that's probably not relevant. Um, blood pressure. I, I don't know. I'd have to think more about that. I don't, I don't have good answers besides what I just said. So um, if I come up with something, I'll, uh, I'll write a post about it or something. Thank you, Mindy, for your question. Uh, Carl Rayner says, have there been any studies with saturated fat and cancer? What about fasting? Uh, I haven't looked at studies on saturated fat and cancer. I know there's some studies suggesting more saturated fat is more means more pancreatic cancer or more advanced stage pancreatic cancer, but I haven't looked at that in a tremendous amount of time. Uh, fasting and cancer, fasting is probably good for cancer on the basis that uh, you're restricting what the cancer can feed off of. I don't think there are human interventions on fasting and cancer, um, but I also haven't been looking or really paying attention to that literature very recently. Thank you for your question, Carl. Sharon Schultz says, what is the alternative to high niacin with TMG to lower high cholesterol? Minus 255, HDL is 100, LDL is 163, triglyceride 63. Caleb Rudd says, high dose pantothine. Sharon says, thank you. How about psyllium? Uh, yeah, you could use high dose pantothine. Um, we covered that in the pantothenic acid podcast. So I would go to the pantothenic acid podcast and keyword search the transcript for cholesterol and you'll find where that discussion and then psyllium will lower cholesterol. Uh, lowering inflammation or weight loss should help if that's relevant. Exercise might help. And Those are the big things that I would look at. All right, thank you, Sharon, for your question. And thank you, Caleb, for jumping in on that as well. Tom Becker says, can you remind me where you thought the high barium came from? We see it on so many hair trace mineral analyses for people who have no known exposure. Uh, in my case, I sent in the, so I had re recently started uh, at that time when I found high barium in my urine, and I'm talking 17 times the upper limit high barium, I had recently started shooting videos then. I was using makeup and I was putting it on myself, which probably led to me inhaling a lot more than I should have. And I was also sleeping under an air conditioner that was blowing over a windowsill that had really badly chipping paint. Both of those things had happened recently before my health problems started. And then because the antifungals that I was put on correlated in their onset with my twitching problem, and because the twitching at that time I was attributing to barium interfering with potassium function, I had the paint chips, the, bron the uh, bronzer, the foundation that I was wearing, and the, two, uh, the uh, terbinafin and the topical ketoconazole that I was using all around that time. I sent them all into doctor's data to have an elemental analysis done on them. 
And the only thing that was not contaminated with toxic metals was the prescription drugs. <laughs> so the drugs with the pharmaceuticals were fine. All that natural stuff was terrible. Um, so paint chips were pretty high in barium and so were both makeups. Uh, and by the way, I mean, paint, barium is, is often used to precipitate color in paints and colored, uh, colored um, makeup products. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, if like women makeup, nail polish and all that stuff and a, just apartment paint can be up to 10% barium. So those, those are the big places that I would look at. Thank you for your question, Todd. Anonymous says, can low thiamine status cause elevated ALT as would pyruvate back up and be converted more to alanine? Uh, so th low thiamine status can elevate alanine. And so you're saying would alanine uh, transaminase elevate in order to convert the pyruvate to alanine? I don't know, maybe, probably, probably. I mean, I, I don't think it's gonna elevate like five times upper limit, but that would not surprise me at all. I, I don't know the data, but that would not surprise me at all if it did that. Thank you for your question, Anonymous. Carl says, what is the best nutrition for allergies? Probably mold as well. Um, so I, I, I talked about my seven steps to histamine intolerance. I would use largely the same recommendations there. Let me, I'll put that link in the chat. Oh, I didn't put it in the chat. Let me pull it up here. Okay, in the chat, I'm putting a link to the seven steps to cure histamine intolerance. Um, and so uh, most of these things are largely centered on just reducing histamine exposure. And so they apply to allergies as well as histamine intolerance. Um, and those are copper, B6, vitamin C, look at your estrogen levels, Consider diamine oxidase supplements, look at methylation-related nutrients, selenium and vitamin A, and alcohol. Thank you, Carl, for your question. Um, Tom Becker says, what acidic things did you take out of the diet? Do you consider oxalate and spinach acidic? Uh... I doubt oxalate is going to contribute too much to the acid load. I think it's largely going to precipitate calcium. I don't know if I was eating spinach at that time. So um, it wasn't something I deliberately took out, but I don't remember if I was eating it. The things that I took out were carbonated water. Uh, coffee was, I think, the most acidic thing I kept in my diet. And it was the main thing that would act, cause the paresthesia in my to start acting up maybe vibrating a little bit. And sometimes it would contribute to twitching. Alcohol, probably for reasons beyond the acidity, was 
I, I mean, it was, alcohol was just way too potent to explain from the acidity. Like one, like any dose of alcohol whatsoever would cause twitching, which I think is probably just negative effects of the metabolism. You know, increased reactive oxygen species or some something. I don't know. Uh, you know, lemons. Um, I don't think I was like lemons, carbonated water. I, I mean, honestly, like I don't drink a lot of acidic things. It's not like I drink soda and things like that. So I think that's most of it. Thank you, Todd, for your question. Anonymous says, can you overdose on glycine? How much is too much? Uh, you can overdose on glycine and there is no such thing as how much is too much. Uh, because 60 grams have been used with no, no, no major side effects in schizophrenics. Um, but some people can't take five grams. So there's no answer to that. How much is too much? And the answer to can you overdose on glycine is yes. Um, so don't take a lot. Take like three grams. See how you respond. Work your way up slowly. Really basic to everything. Start slow. Work your way up. Um, and, you know, if you, if you notice negative effects, don't go up further, cut back on the dose a little bit. And you should probably take it with food on the basis that it could lower your blood sugar otherwise. Right. Thank you for your question, Anonymous. Anonymous says, are there any, uh, are there any nutrient deficiencies that would explain elevated MCH and MCV when both methylmalonic acid and homocysteine are good. Um, so copper deficiency can cause, um, can cause anemia that masks that or not masks that imitates every other anemia, including an elevated MCV. And, uh, not sure what else I would put in there. Although you're saying when both methylmalonic acid and homocysteine are good, you should look specifically at folate uh, because um, homocysteine goes up when you don't have enough methylfolate. Methylfolate does nothing for anemia. Um, macrocytic anemia is caused by deficiency of the uh, methylene tetrahydrofolate, which is upstream from methyl tetrahydrofolate and is not going to be directly related to homocysteine. So you could have low uh, dihydrofolate reductase activity genetically, although I'm not uh, satisfied with any common polymorphism testing on that. Um, you might want to experiment with folinic acid and you might want to look at other markers of folate besides um, besides homocysteine, serum folate and red blood cell folate would be the top ones. The red blood cell folate might be more relevant here and looking at form amino glutamate, glutamate or figlu on an organic acids test, such as the Genova ion plus 40 is not a bad idea. And then, you know, any anemia, if you can't find a nutritional cause for it, it might be a non-nutritional cause. So you should talk to a specialist about that if it comes to that point. Anonymous says, can you comment on the relative leptin deficiency experienced by people who have, who have lost a lot of weight? 
Is there anything that can be done for it? Do leptin levels normalize after some time at the new weight? How much time? Um, leptin is a hormone made by adipose tissue in proportion to its mass that serves primarily to indicate how much adipose tissue there is. So if you lose weight, your leptin will go down because you lost weight and you lost fat and you lost the thing that makes leptin as an indicator of how much that thing is there. So leptin should go down when you lose weight and it should stay down. Um, and I'm sure there's nuances to add to that, but I think you need to ask more specifically about those nuances because it's not obvious to me what nuances to add from the, from the way that you're asking the question. Uh, Anonymous says, what strategies would you recommend to improve a poor first phase insulin response, specifically where insulin sensitivity is fine, so blood glucose rapidly returns to normal after a meal, but spikes too high in the first 30 to 40 minutes? Um, I would consume some dextrose or honey at the beginning of a meal because the taste receptors are what initiate the first phase insulin response they respond to simple sugars they don't respond to starch and if you have a poor first phase insulin response the overwhelming thing that i would think is you probably have low salivary amylase activity um, and you can compensate for that by consuming simple sugars instead of starches all right if that helps anonymous thank you for your question Anonymous says, I had a chiropractor tell me to drop my vitamin C dose from 1,000 milligrams to 500 milligrams because 1,000 milligrams was clogging my liver. This doesn't make sense to me. Doesn't vitamin C help bind intermediates between phase one, phase two detox? Um, don't take nutritional advice from that chiropractor. That doesn't make any sense. And I would not take nutritional advice from anyone who tells me I'm clogging my liver with anything especially if it's not something that causes fatty liver. Uh, I, sorry, I just, the comment doesn't make enough sense to like critically analyze. Um, I don't mean your comment. I mean the, what the doctor, what the chiropractor said. Anonymous says the Feldman protocol involves eating a very hypercaloric, low carb, high fat diet for three days before cholesterol blood tests in order to induce a drop in serum cholesterol. <laughs> What is your opinion on why it works? Would such a hypercaloric diet increase both T3 and insulin upregulating LDL receptor activity, which hormone would have the majority of the effect? I mean, my, my main reaction to that is, what are you doing it for to fake some kind of insurance thing? Um, I mean, why would you want to cause, why would you want to induce a drop in serum cholesterol three days before a blood test? rather than know what your cholesterol is when you're doing normal things. Um, so I don't really understand the rationale for why this is being done, but a low carb, high fat, hypercaloric diet is, it's going, yeah, it's probably going to increase T3. I mean, the low, I mean, probably a high carb, high hypercaloric diet would increase T3 more, but a hypercaloric diet is going to increase T3, I would think. 
especially if it's on the background of a low carb eucaloric diet, then it's certainly going to raise T3 uh, and upregulate LDL receptor activity. Yeah, that makes, yeah, I agree with your explanation. I just don't, I just don't understand the point of doing that. All right, thank you, Anonymous. Uh, Anonymous says, hey, Chris, in my late teens, I took two rounds of Accutane, synthetic vitamin A, and had some pretty gnarly side effects, including dry, peely skin, achy joints, and foggy thinking. Now in my mid-20s and in the pursuit of a more natural diet, I've tried eating liver a few times, but unfortunately can never stick with it because it flares up the same side effects that I had on Accutane. Do you think I could possibly detox the Accutane from my system with vitamin D, E, and K? Um, yeah. I think, so, you know, I would be, I, I mean, the, the, ordinarily I would be skeptical that the natural vitamin A is going to have the same effect as the Accutane, but you're telling me it does. So, so I'll take you at your word for that, that it does, in which case, um, yeah, maybe you have a buildup of this. And the best way to increase the turnover of vitamin A would be to supplement with high doses of D, E, and K. So I would use probably uh, a ratio that looks something like 3,000 IU of vitamin D to a, um, maybe 20 IU of vitamin E to, no, let's say 3,000 IU of vitamin D to 100 IU of uh, uh, vitamin E as alpha tocopherol. You can include the mixed tocotrienols and mixed tocopherols if you want. Um, and one milligram of vitamin K and um, as MK4. And then if you want, you can titrate up those doses in that same multiple. And you could go really high if you do a lot of testing, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't increase those a lot if you're not doing testing. All right, I hope that helps. Thank you for your question. Uh, Anonymous says, best way to test glutathione. So you're basically, your two options are lab core whole blood glutathione. Um, benefit, it's lab core. I trust lab core. It's probably accurate. Uh, downside, they don't break it down to reduced oxidized glutathione. HDRI does, um, but I don't, uh, downside, I don't trust HDRI and I don't think they do the analysis right. So I would go with LabCorp whole blood glutathione. Thank you, Anonymous. Anonymous says, are there any good liver phase one, phase two detoxification tests available? Doctors data have one, but it doesn't subdivide phase two. Um, I have seen one before that was done, I think in Australia. And I don't know if it's easy to guess, to get, um, but I would have to look it up. I'll put a note to try to look it up. I'll probably make like a, a light episode about it when I find it. Um, so to keep a lookout for that, but I, I'm not gonna be, it would take too long for me to try to look for it right now. Uh, Sharon says, I have to go, but this has been awesome. Thank you, Chris. You're welcome, Sharon. Thank you for coming. 
And then last question, I believe this is the last question, if no one has their hand. Uh, yep, last question. Nothing in the chat yet. Last question, all right. If phosphate is in the higher side of the reference range, calcium on the lower side of the reference range, vitamin D level is good, what are po possible explanations for the higher phosphate? Um, you have a high dietary phosphate to calcium ratio. That's, and maybe you're supplementing with enough vitamin D to prevent the vitamin D level from dropping below what you would expect it to be. That's probably what it is. Um, I mean, granted, the, you know, the reference ranges, it's, I don't know if you can directly compare the phosphate to the calcium, ionizes really what's regulated but yeah i mean you probably need to eat less phosphorus and more calcium but if your 25 ohd is good and your parathyroid hormone which you didn't mention is is uh in the bottom half of the reference range it appears to be maximally suppressed then you probably don't need to worry about it too much um and so generally i tend to think a pth is maximally suppressed if it's under 30 picograms per milliliter uh, but the true test of whether it's maximally suppressed is that less phosphorus or and or more calcium, more vitamin D does not suppress it further. And so if it's maximally suppressed, uh, I wouldn't worry too much about the phosphorus being a little high and the calcium a little low within the reference range. Um, but if the PTH is not maximally suppressed, that would flag this as an issue. And I would start suspecting you need more calcium, less phosphate in the diet. I mean, most people do. And if you wanted to test that further, you could look at FGF23 and at calcitonin as indicators of pressure on the system exerted by more phosphorus in the case of FGF23 and more calcium in the case of calcitonin. But you probably, if anything, need to reduce dietary phosphorus or raise dietary calcium. All right, hope that helps anonymous. All right. Thank you everyone for your questions. This has been very fun. This show is over. The recording should go up by tomorrow. And um, at some point I will get the transcripts. I know I'm behind with transcripts, um, but at some point soon, they're going to come out like very quickly. You're going to get the backload done. Um, it's just with the vitamins and minerals class and balancing a few other things, it's really hard for me to do everything at once. And so I'm trying to go through each thing and, and get a system running. And, uh, and so once my system is better for dealing with uh, each of those things, the transcripts will be a much quicker turnaround. You're welcome, Anonymous. Anonymous says, thanks, Chris. Uh, all capitals and thanks. You're welcome, Anonymous. Thank you for all for joining me. And this is, this show is now done. I'll see you around.